Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Scripture reading this morning is from Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You guys can be seated. You've got your Bibles. You might open to Colossians chapter 4. We are wrapping up a series. Spent the last three months studying the book of Colossians, and today we reach the last paragraph in Paul's letter to this church, and he's going to tell us why we exist, finishing with a final charge that the church is called to put into action. And as we think back about this book and, and have walked through all of uh, Colossians together over the last several months, uh, the, the, the big idea of Colossians is that Christ, Jesus Christ is exalted above everything else. The way Colossians 1 says it is that Christ is to be preeminent. Christ is to be in the first place in our lives. And Paul actually focuses most of the first half of the book on you and me in our own hearts. It says Christ is to be first place in you. And then last week we began to see, he begins to kind of move out in concentric circles from there. He says Christ is meant not to just to be first place in you, but first place in your marriage. And then first place in your relationship with your children. And then first place in your work. And then today we extend it out one step further. He says that Christ is to be first place in our world. And so we're to look at really our, this week we're going to look at our relationships with those outsiders to our faith, those who are outside of us. And I want to ask us a question today. Um, Can you really be fully alive in your relationship to Jesus without being fully engaged in the mission of Jesus? Can you be fully devoted to Christ's follower and not tell others about Jesus? Uh, I think it's hard to imagine that if you look at the scriptures. Christ says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That somehow that's going to bubble out and, and cause us to do that. But here's what I know after 30 years in ministry. Most of us have never sat down and led anyone to Christ. That's just the the way it tends to go is most of us have rarely sat down with someone and explained to them what what Jesus did for us and how they might experience the same thing. We haven't shared a testimony or witness of Christ. And so most of us kind of outsource that. But also know that for many of us, we haven't been told we could do it. Some of you may not even realize that's a possibility, that you could be an evangelist, which sounds really creepy and intimidating, doesn't it? Like, but, but when you think about what scriptures are calling us to, that's an opportunity that's there. 
likely you may not have been encouraged to do so. Or maybe you haven't been taught well enough that you feel comfortable feeling like you have something to share or say. There's a a million different reasons why we might not share. But here's what I want us to look at, or what I want you to know today. If, If you aren't telling people about Jesus and seeing them experience new life in him, you're missing out. It's one of the most glorious, joyful, wonderful experiences you could possibly have to see someone, see new life birthed in another person. And so as we think about that, like I remember the when, first times I began to experience this in my own life. I, I think the first time I saw it was when I was in middle school and I brought a buddy. Um, we were, his name was Jeff too, so it was like Dumb and Dumber. It was Jeff and Jeff show. And, but we came to middle school, the guy I played football with, and I invited him to a church event and he became a Christian. And all of a sudden our relationship just took on a whole different flavor because now my buddy was also my brother. And we began to experience that. I remember going uh, and sharing with different people in, in high school, which is always a terrifying thing when you begin to share with someone your faith in a high school and um, begin to get made fun of sometimes from different people. But I had this uh, girl that called me. This is a girl I had class with, but someone that I didn't really know. It wasn't someone I hung out with or did a lot with, but someone that I had been in class with. And she, I got a phone call from her the first Christmas break of when I was, went away to college. And I've got the phone, I'm like, dude, I don't know why she's calling me, but this is kind of weird. So all of a sudden I pick it up and she starts the phone call off and she goes, I did it. I'm like, what'd you do? She said, I have a relationship with Jesus now. I remember I used to make fun of you when you guys would talk about this thing and I didn't think there's anything to it. But I know, but, but it's different now. I, I met Jesus my freshman year in college and I just wanted to call and tell you and I wanted you to know that I have a relationship with Jesus. I remember just this feeling of like amazement at what God had done. This person had been like stiff arming. The whole idea is now completely changed and said, Jesus is, I have a relationship. I've got a friendship with Jesus now. And it began to look different. I remember when I worked in the telecom industry, there was um, a guy, I worked with a whole lot of different people. And one of the guys I worked with, honestly, was like the most foul mouthed dude I ever knew. Like it just seemed like every, you know, every third word was some kind of cuss word he did. And one day I'm sitting in my office at lunchtime, my door just gets thrown open and he runs in and he goes, dude, what faith are you? Cause I need something. So me being highly intelligent and sensitive to the God's leading, recognize this might be an open door. So I began to just explain to him about what Christ had done and that we didn't have to earn our salvation, but that Jesus died for us and offers us a free gift by his grace and began to explain it. And he looked up and he goes, you're telling me that Jesus did that for me. And I was like, yeah. He goes, damn, that's cool. And I was like, yes, it is. Now let's talk about what it looks like, you know, to, to begin a relationship with him, begin to work that out. But we began to talk about that. But this guy just changed. And it was through this experience of God's grace that he just came and looked and said, I need to know something. And in each of those experiences and other ones, I could tell you, there's just something that's overwhelmingly wonderful about getting to participate with God and seeing new life begin in someone. And there's a joy that you can't really, uh, that I can't really describe in any other way other than, uh, than it's just a, it's a participation in a miracle. When you see someone who was far from God or an outsider to the faith that is rescued and restored and renewed and they begin new life. It's an incredible thing to, to be a part of. When you look at these people who are outsiders that now all of a sudden are brothers and sisters that are gonna live with you forever under the care of God and under his direction and eternal life in our family. 
Do you recognize that you get to participate with God in the miraculous work of seeing people come to Christ for the first time and and experience new life? It's an amazing thing. Now, when we think about Colossians, think about the way this book has unfolded. Paul is going to end it with inviting us into the mission of God to be able to share the gospel. But the whole thing up to this point has been really telling us about all the benefits and all the joy and all the things we've been given in Christ and why Christ ought to be first in our life because he's the best thing we've ever imagined. And I want to go back and just highlight a couple of those, but I want you to to think about it through this lens. What would it be like for you to share these truths with someone and see them come to life. Colossians 1 says, Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. You get to invite someone. Can you imagine what it'd be like to walk with them into the kingdom of the beloved Son where they're experiencing a transfer from the domain of darkness into a whole new kingdom? Colossians 1.27, God chose to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Paul was blown away. It was like Christ has come to live within people that are outside of Judaism, but they're Gentiles and they're people of every stripe and every tongue and all kinds of people and all kinds of sinners. And Christ has taken up residence in them. It's a miracle. It's a mystery. Can you imagine what it'd be like to be able to share with someone and say, Christ will live in you. You'll have Christ in you and see that happen in their own lives. It's a miraculous thing. Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our sins by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. But we have sins and brokenness in our life, and Christ says, I'll take those. And he nailed them to the cross, so there's no debt that we have to pay anymore. There's no shame There's no weight of a sin that we have to carry because he's carried it all for us. Imagine sharing the good news with someone that says, all of the brokenness, all of the trespasses, all of the sin, all the debt you couldn't pay, Christ will take it all for you. And see the countenance and their face change as they experience the forgiveness of their sins. And know that there's nothing they have to do to earn the love of God, but it's a free gift from them. Friends, how can we possibly take that good news and hoard it for ourselves and not want to share it with someone else. Like if all of that is true of us, and Colossians says it is, that, that you've been transferred from one kingdom to another, that your sins have been forgiven, that Christ has come to change you and to renew you and to take up residence in you, and Christ has forgiven all your trespasses, and there's no more anything to be paid because he nailed it all across and it's all gone. If all that's true of you, don't you want to share that with someone else? and see them begin to experience the goodness of that life as well. If you're fully alive with Christ, we ought to be fully invested in seeing more people redeemed by Christ. That's the, the, the big picture of what Paul, I think, wants us to see here. So let me tell you where we're going to go. We're going to look at four things today um, as we kind of unpack these verses. We're going to look at what it means to be fully alive in the mission of God and the way in which we're called to live. We need to pray, talk, walk, and watch. We're going to start with the first of these, which is prayer. Everything in the mission of God begins with prayer. We, we're, we're called to speak to God about others before we speak to others about God. So we, we start off talking to, to the Lord. Verses two to four give us really several principles for our prayers. And um, this will be like a little sermon within a sermon. I'm just going to tell you, like, there's so much that Paul packs into these few verses that just give us a picture of kind of different aspects of prayer life. But what you need to know is prayer is not just giving your shopping list to God. 
Like prayer is so much more than God, here's what I need and here's what I want. Prayer, prayer is this much bigger, more robust thing. So let's talk about what, what Paul, how Paul presents prayer here. It says our prayer should be watchful. The word to pray with watchfulness. Watchfulness means that you're not sleepwalking through life. It means that you're wide awake to what God's doing in the world and to the needs of the world and that you're alert and you're on it, you're attentive to the things that are around you. You're alive to the will of God and how that might be applied to all the circumstances that you see around you, but somehow you're watching things that are happening in a way that's alert. Watchfulness suggests that we need to live with a sense of spiritual attentiveness rather than spiritual complacency. That we're not just going through the motions, but that we're attentive to what God's doing. Friends, do you live a watchful life? Like when you leave here, are you going to go really looking at the world around you? Looking at people that don't know Christ, that are outsiders of the faith, looking at the needs of the world, looking at the brokenness of the world, and then, then carrying those things to the one who can actually change them. That's what it means to be watchful in prayer, is that you see the things that are happening and you lift those up to a God who can actually do something about them. So we should be watchful. Our prayer should also be continual. We're to stay at it. He says, continue steadfastly. That means don't quit. Prayer is not a rabbit's foot that you rub one time or an incantation or, or, or a, a, a kind of magic spell that you say. Prayer is a relational thing that you're continuing to bring things to the Lord in a conversation with him. Um, Jesus said that we're, uh, we ought to always pray and not lose heart. A guy named Thomas Kelly, who's a Quaker, said, uh, kind of describes how this might look, because it's a little difficult for us sometimes to think about, well, I've got a whole lot of responsibilities in my day. How do I pray all the time, continually, as scriptures call me to do? He says it this way. He says, there's a way of ordering our mental life on more than one level at once. On one level, we can be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating, meeting the demands of our day externally, but deep within, behind the scenes, at a profounder level, says, we may also be in prayer, adoration, song, worship, with a gentle receptiveness to divine breathings. I love that phrase, that there's a gentle openness or receptiveness or attentiveness to the breath of God, to the direction of God and what the Lord would, might say. So our prayers should be continual. Our prayers should also be thankful. Are your prayers tinged with surprise and joy? Because what you see in scripture over and over is we pray with gratitude because we're shocked that God's love is so great. Like that, that's the idea that as you look at this, you're like, dude, I did nothing and God gave me unlimited love. I, I didn't earn it, I didn't deserve it, I wasn't worthy of it, but God gave me everything and there's nothing I can do to lose it. God has bestowed upon me his love by his grace through Christ and it's remembering God's mercy and his grace through the cross and through the resurrection that we look at and that ought to always cause us to be tinged with joy and thankfulness. Our lives ought to overflow with that because the gospel of God's grace is so overwhelming that we should always be thankful. Third, the next thing is we see that our prayers should be communal, which is kind of a weird word, especially if you grew up in like 60s or 70s, that can get creepy, but not talking about that at all. But it just means, if you think about our prayers being communal, it means that we're a community and that we don't just pray like me and my private deal by a tree in the mountains, but we're to, we're to pray as a part of a community. We pray for others. Paul says, would you pray for me? We're called to pray for the other people that are in our church and the people that are, that are in our, our community. And Paul says, that, yeah, I need spiritual strength and wisdom. I need God's help to make the gospel clear. I need God to do something in this that I can't do. Would you pray for me? Friends, can I just say that, that as we think about what this looks like, 
means that we intercede on behalf of others. It means we take the, the goals of the church community and we, we share these common goals and we lift these up together to the Lord. It means that, we, that, that I desire your success in the mission and you desire my success in the mission and that we're all working at this thing together. And can I say, kind of like Paul did, like, would you pray for me? Like, there's a lot of things I have to do that I can't do. Like, when I sit down with a couple that's going through a marriage struggle, I, I can't make them decide to love one another. I can present some truth. I can play referee in their, in their arguments. I can sort of try to give them some guidance and some counsel, but only God can change their heart. When I get up here Sunday after Sunday, when our, and if someone else gets in this pulpit and we preach the word, like, we can give truth, but if, 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 it, if God's not in it, it's just gonna hit a wall. And the only way that it bears fruit is if God opens that door and they receive it in a way that they can. Would you pray for us? Pray for our deacons and elders. Pray for our staff. Pray for the mission and the ministries of this church. Pray that God would be in them because this church only moves forward through your prayers. In fact, I say it this way. God summons your prayers to be the wind that fills the sails of the ship. God has ordained that your prayers would help fill the winds that would drive this thing forward. Pray for us. Our prayers should also be evangelistic. Um, Paul says, pray that God would help us to declare the mystery of God and uh, the mystery of Christ in a clear way. And we're to pray that that, that the gospel would advance, that people would respond to him, that the the message of God's good news of grace would go out into the world in a way that's effective. And so we continue to see those kinds of prayers throughout the New Testament that are often focused on the mission. Uh, Lastly, we see that our prayer should be expectant. Paul says, pray for open doors praying that the gospel would be effective, would effectively enter the hearts of people. And I think one of the reasons we don't pray is because we're overconfident in ourselves. That if we think we can manage all of life, if we think we can manage all of this, if we think we can do all the things that need to happen in our, in our family, in our situation, then we're not gonna lean in to praying. But when we realize that only God can do the things that we're asking, that we need done, it's gonna, make, it's gonna lead us to a place of prayer. And so we pray that God would pave the way for the gospel, for the word, for his truth to bear fruit in people's lives, people around us. We see this all over the New Testament. Let me just give you four quick hits. Uh, Acts 14, 27 says, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. It's what God did. God opened the door. Acts 16, 14 speaks of a woman who heard the gospel presented to her and it says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. 1 Corinthians 16 says, a wide door of effective work has opened to me, though there are still many adversaries. Verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 12, when I came to Trous to preach the gospel of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. Do you see how this pattern shows up over and over? But Paul's saying, look, I can go and I can, I can share the good news with someone, but unless the Lord opens their heart, opens the door of their heart, it's not gonna penetrate and it's not gonna do the work of bringing new life there. Friends, evangelism doesn't happen unless you speak, but it's not effective unless God opens the door. We can't speak unless God gives us an opportunity, but they won't respond unless God gives them grace to hear. So our job is we keep showing up, we keep praying, we keep talking, we keep watching and we keep walking by faith and trusting God to open doors. A heart of expectancy will lead you back to prayer over and over and over. 
if we live with a sense of expectancy that God's going to open doors to people, we're going to continue to come to him and ask him to do that work over and over and over. So you get kind of an image of prayer. It's bigger than a shopping list, isn't it? Our prayers are meant to be watchful, continual, thankful, communal, evangelistic, expectant. All those things should color our prayers. So we start with prayer, then we move to mission. The second thing we must do is, is talk. So we pray and then we talk. Once we've prayed up, we need to speak up. Uh, verse thir- verses three and four says, to declare the mystery of Christ that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Friends, the gospel is good news that, that our job is just to announce. We're, we're witnesses to what God has done and we're just to go and announce the good news and just let people in on, on the insight that we've been given. And so we communicate to other people the information about God's forgiveness in Christ that we've already received. So you've been given this message and you just share it with someone else. It's like one beggar taking a piece of bread and passing it down the line to the next guy. That's the, the picture that we're meant to have. It's an interesting phrase that Paul uses here when he says the mystery of Christ. And he says the mystery of Christ, he means the gospel or good news. It's not mystery like a mystery novel that's like, I don't know how this works. It's a mystery in the sense that it's so shocking and surprising how good it is that it just blows your mind. That's, what, that's the, the idea that we're supposed to have. It's why Romans 1, 16 says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And we, um, this is what, what Paul says in Romans 1 because it starts with, everything starts with the gospel message. It's powerful in and of itself. It's what we're meant to build our lives upon. But here's something I want to recognize. A lot of us kind of have some hurdles to overcome if we were to think about sharing the gospel. And um, sometimes we, a lot of us grew up in church traditions that were very focused on uh, the preacher, very focused on the stage. And in this kind of environment, everything was looking here. And you began to look at this guy as the evangelist. And it's the professional that's up there that does all the things. And his job is to woo all the listeners into making a decision. And so there's kind of this, this kind of presentation thing that happens. And sometimes that leads to this emotionalism thing of trying to get someone to raise a hand or pray a sinner's prayer or, or check a box or do a thing. And we kind of build this, this expectation up and, and it's all about the presentation. And, and that in and of itself on the surface isn't always wrong, but there is a danger in it. I think it has a power or the ability to create a mindset in us that says evangelism is as much about the power of the presentation as it is the power of the gospel. And it's the gospel that really does the thing. In fact, what Paul says elsewhere is that it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. That it's not through the presentation or the presenter that this thing happens, but it's through the power of the gospel. And our job is just to announce it, to bear witness to it, and to allow it to do its work. It's not a helpful assumption to act like evangelism is only the work of really smart people or really charismatic people. But sometimes that's what we kind of put forward out there. So we look for scholars who can convince everyone through argument. And we look through really charismatic people who can emotively stir people up and get a response. But that's a mistaken view. When you look at the scriptures, that's not really what we see. We see Jesus with some disciples that were pretty messed up saying, now you go and share the good news with those around you. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And they were not people who were overly impressive. In fact, Paul later says, says none of us were that impressive, and yet God sent us to do the work um, because he gets all the glory. 
In fact, the Bible says that that evangelism is the work of all the people. In verse five, Paul's gonna say, now you yourselves are called to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. You're the ones that are to go and do the work so that you might know how to answer each person and share the gospel. And friends, can I give you some good news? You can do this. You can be a witness. I know it's intimidating. I know it can feel overwhelming. I know it can feel threatening at times. But your job is only to give a witness to what, you, to what you do know and trust God with the results. Your job isn't to, to give an answer for everything. You're not called to be an expert witness. You're just called to be a witness. Do you know the difference between a witness and an expert witness? If you're in court and there's a car wreck, and let's say a car had careened off the side of a road and gone up over and ran into a building, as a witness, your job is to go like, well, what did you see? Well, I saw a car and it went up over the curb and it went up and hit the road and had an impact that was there. What's an expert witness? Now, if you think you have to be an expert witness, you're gonna be fearful because you're gonna be worried about the counter arguments. You're gonna be worried about all the things. And an expert witness is the one that has to answer questions like, well, how, what, was, what was the exact speed limit of the car? What was the make and model of that car? What was the year that car was made? Was that car cherry red or was it, was it apple red? Was that car going at a more than a 45 degree angle or an under 45 degree angle? Those, you don't have to be an expert witness. You're just called to be a witness of what you know. I was lost and now I'm found. I was blind and now I see. That's what I know. I don't, I don't, maybe don't know everything there is to know, but I can give witness to what I do know, which is I was saved and Jesus changed my life. I was dead and Jesus gave me life. Uh, we're called to, uh, and I think it's encourage, or ought to be encouraging for you also. Can I just say, when we admit we don't know the answers, sometimes it has the effect of creating a safe place for people to actually explore faith. When we admit, I don't, I don't know everything there is to know, then sometimes it causes them to lean in and ask questions in a different kind of way. But friends, we're not supposed to be marketers for the message. Marketers tend to drift into the zeitgeist of the cultural moments and the spirit of the age, trying to make the gospel more palatable and appealing and logical to outsiders. And if we lack confidence in the gospel, we might start listening to arguments in order to, that resist the simple truth of the gospel. And if you don't understand the sovereignty of God and that it's God that opens the door, then you might be tempted to try to adjust the message to fit the mission, to make the mission be more effective. But never swap the mystery of Christ for the marketing of Christ. That's why verse four, Paul says that, pray that I might make the gospel clear. That's my job. He didn't say pray that I might make, might make the gospel more sexy. He just said pray that I might make the truth clear. That's my job. And we're called, we're called to declare it in a straightforward way. The reason it's called a mystery is not because it's a problem, a puzzle to solve. It's because it's so surprising and shocking and good that we're just overwhelmed by, by the goodness of God's love. The religions of our world say that to build a, uh, that, that we begin by living a good life and moral life and then God will bless us with a better life. But that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while we didn't have it all together, Christ came to us. That while we were, uh, while we were sheep who had gone astray, Christ came and rescued the one that was lost and brought him home. He did all the work. We did nothing to earn God's blessing, but he gave it anyway. It's all grace. That's meant to be, it's why it's called a mystery. And we're supposed to take that great mystery and share it with our friends and neighbors and coworkers and classmates. We're to tell everyone about the grace of God and all that it means for us. Mystery tellers walk in dependence of the spirit of God and ask him to enliven the old, old story of the gospel. That's, what, that's our job.
So you see that the first two things we're called to do? We need to pray and we need to talk. And if that was all we got today, that'd be pretty good, wouldn't it? Like if, if we just looked at those verses, it's a pretty amazing truth that's there. But verse five, it's interesting, goes one step further. And, and Paul is like, I don't want you, I don't want you all to miss out on this. I want to make sure each of you gets in on the action. And so Paul turns in verse five and he's gonna shift it and he's gonna begin to say, um, you are invited to, to participate in this. You don't have to outsource the mission of God. You get to actually participate in the mission of God. And so he's gonna begin to talk about how we walk. In verse five, he says, now you are, you are to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Um, this is an important message because if, we, if Paul didn't have this verse in there, we might be tempted to think, that the mission of God really is up to the apostles, up to the, the superstars, up to the, the big shots. And Paul in verse five is purposefully shifting it and focusing on us. And he says, no, you walk in wisdom towards outsiders. All of you in the church are called to do this and you're invited to participate. When he says walk, he says, it means like conduct yourself. It's speaking of your way of life, your attitudes, your actions, the things you do, the manner in which you live. You're to, you're to walk in a way that is appealing to outsiders. You're, you're walking in a way that's wise in your, in your way in which you interact, um, to conduct yourself in a way that's conducive to them hearing the gospel. Uh, verse six gives us a little more clarity on that. It says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Um, he's saying that, uh, that when you talk or text or post, by the way, but that's the way we talk today is oftentimes with our thumbs. But when you talk or text or post, it should always be a word of grace, graciousness, kindness, winsomeness in the way in which you interact with everyone else around you. It's interesting, he says, always with grace, meaning not just when you speak about the gospel, but all the words that come out of you, all of them always ought to be filled with kindness and grace and winsomeness in the way in which you present yourself. Season with salt is kind of a weird phrase for us, but in the ancient world, they used salt to preserve meat and food and also to add flavor and, and make it taste better. And so it was a common phrase in that world that speech was seasoned with salt to make it taste good and to make it really, uh, really beneficial and healthy for you to eat. Uh, Jesus said that his followers, people are to be salt to the earth. I love what one guy said. He says that um, people who are salt to the earth might be reasonably expected to have some savor about their language. But if you're salt, you probably had to have some, I don't want to call it salty talk because that means something totally different in our day. But our talk ought to be seasoned with salt. It ought to be gracious. It ought to be kind. Words that are seasoned with salt, one guy says, are attractive to unbelievers' spiritual appetites. And to the outside watching world who don't have faith, when they hear you speak, when they listen to you, when they're in your presence, when they're around you, is there something that whets their appetites that goes, I want to know more. I want to know what's, what's driving that person on the inside. There's, there's a graciousness about their person that comes through their presence and their words and my experience of them, and I want to know more about that. What's the danger of speaking of Christians who engage others in ways that are not gracious or seasoned with salt? I jokingly kind of called this spiritual halitosis. Like you've got spiritual bad breath. Like doesn't matter what words, if you may say beautiful words and language may come out, maybe the right terms, but if your breath stinks, I don't really want to hear it. And it's just saying, don't, don't speak truth to people with death breath. 
You know, you're just like, oh, like I don't, oh, no, I don't want to be in your presence. Even if the words sound right, if you use the right terms, and we don't share beautiful, beautiful news in, a, in, a, in an ugly way. Why is this term always, I think, here as well? Have you ever say that for every 10 negative things you experience, or every one negative thing you experience, it requires 10 positive things to overcome? I think that's true with our language as well. The reason why we have to always be, um, it, it ought to come out of who we are. That if we're walking with Christ, if we're looking like Christ, if we're being formed and shaped to look like Christ, Christ ought to come out of us. And when that doesn't happen, it creates a lot of uh, stuff for us to have to overcome in trying to begin to share the gospel and good news because of words that weren't gracious or words that weren't seasoned with salt. We need to be those who are. Um, Now, how do we do that? I think Paul's already told us how to do that. If you go back to verse two, what did he say? Continue steadfastly in prayer. The only way that you always govern your words and that you always are, are presenting and, and, and overflowing something that comes from Christ is if you're always at your heart tethered to Christ. If you're prayed up and you're walking with Christ and you're close with Christ, then Christ is what's gonna come out of you. And when you're distant from Christ, something else is gonna come out of you. Your old self is gonna come out. And it's gonna create a problem. And so we need to pray continually and walk closely with the Lord so that it's the Lord that comes out. Because what's in our heart, Jesus says, is what comes out of our mouth. Um, Friends, let's stay humble and kind in the way in which we talk always, but especially in the way in which we begin to present truth. Um, It's interesting, one guy says, people who do not read the Bible for themselves or listen to the preaching of the word word of God can still see the lives of those who do and form their judgments accordingly. See, many people read our lives before they read God's word. So we need to be those who are kind and gracious and winsome, seasoned with salt. Uh, it goes on to say that we should know how to respond to each person. Paul's saying that, that you want to be wise in the way in which you interact so that you know how it is you can respond to someone. And we need to be ready to give a gospel witness. First Peter 3 says it this way, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So you ought to have so much hope just coming out of your life that people go, hey, dude, where did that come from? I want to know more about that. And they begin to ask and inquire that. When they do, you need to give an answer for that and yet do it with gentleness and respect. Because the church is not supposed to be defensive and fearful in our posture. We're expected to be able to hold our own in conversation with people all over. That we're to, to go to the marketplace, to walk down the, the schools, uh, the halls of your school, to go through your neighborhood, to go to the places around us and just to give a defense, uh, just to give a witness. Here's why I have hope. It's because of Jesus and what he did for me. And we're, we're called to be able to present the truth of the gospel message and the way in which we present it and the way in which we live alongside that and walk it out ought to be winsome and attractive. It ought to whet their appetite for more. That's the, the picture the scriptures want us to have. So let's look at the fourth element here. Be fully alive in the mission of God. We pray, talk, walk, and then we watch. Earlier back in verse two, remember it said that we're to pray being watchful in it. As he talks about being watchful, he's saying we're supposed to be on alert, awake, never complacent, but always looking for what God's doing in the world. And then in verse five, he puts this, uh, this phrase in here that's a really fascinating phrase. He says uh, that we're to make the best use of the time. That phrase, there's a lot of different ways you could translate that phrase. You could translate that time to 
buy back the time, to purchase the time, to redeem the time, to make the most of the time. But, but there's a sense of, do you feel the sense of urgency in all those phrases? That it's meant to kind of instill this, this focus and, and, and urgency in us. And, and Paul's saying that we need, we need to buy up all the time we can get. And there's two words for time Paul could have chosen to use uh, here in this verse. And he could have used the word chronos, which is kind of just time that passes on a clock. It just refers generally to time as it passes and as you're moving through it. There's another word that's kairos that speaks to a little bit different thing. It's a season of time. It's a moment of time. It's a window of opportunity that has a beginning and an end. And so there's this kind of window of opportunity that you have or a season where, where this kind of time can be seized or lost, but it's going to pass. And when it's gone, you can't get it back. Paul chose the word kairos to use here. We're to make the most of the window of opportunity that you've been given. You're to make the most of the season that you're in. You're to make the most of this sliver of time that's yours right now, but one day will be gone. And you're supposed to have a sense of urgency. It's like the man or woman that goes to Best Buy on Black Friday. Like they've got a limited budget and a whole lot of stuff they want and they're gonna try to get everything they want before it's all gone, Right? And so you're going to run and maybe even scout it out before and he went and shopped like, I need to know what's on aisle. I need to know which, where that computer is and where that Christmas gift for my kid is. And I need to know where that cord that I've broken again is. And I want to know, and you have all the things you want and you've scoped it out. And when the doors open, you're going to rush in and grab everything that you want to make sure you got it all because you've got a window of opportunity called Black Friday and you don't want to miss it. Or you just got online and put it all in your cart and hit go. But that's a whole nother story to make a good illustration. So I didn't want to use that one. But it's like an investor that, that knows this stock is about to blow up and I know it. I'm not gonna, it's not gonna lackadaisically go, well, I'll get around to purchasing some sometime. No, he's like, buy, 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 because he's got a window of opportunity that he knows that stock's gonna go up and he wants to grab all that he can get. That's the picture that Paul wants us to have when we think about being able to share the gospel. Um, friends, why do we need to be instructed to buy up the time or make the most of the time? It's because we just don't. We get busy and we get distracted and we get tired and then we go home and veg out on Netflix because we're worn out. But there's a window of time that we have where we can make a difference. And God's given us, he's put us in the world for a reason and he wants us to have a sense of urgency about that mission. Jesus said something similar, John 9, he says, we must work the works of him who sent us while it's still day. But night is coming when no one gets to work any longer. There's a window of opportunity we've been given, but it's not forever. And the window of opportunity right now to tell people about Jesus, but our time won't last forever. And the people around us have a window of opportunity right now where they can hear about Jesus, but it won't last forever. This is, this is the only moment we've been given to make him known and to see new life come to them, now's our chance to tell them about the gift of grace that he offers. Friends, you're not here just to make a living and make a career and make a family and make a home. You're here to make a difference. And God says, you walk with wisdom towards outsiders making the most of the time that you've been given, being ready to give an answer. So what do we do with this? Friends, the gospel is the greatest good you can give the world. And I want you to know, you've got a story to share. And I know sometimes we don't think our story is that, that powerful, but it's not about your story, it's about the gospel. It's about giving witness to what God has done in your life 
That's what we're called to do. And God has given you a message to share. Your story of being rescued by grace and given a relationship with Jesus. Your story of the lessons you've learned along the way. You've learned lessons about your struggles and your failures, about your finances and your marriage. You've learned that that when I didn't have enough, God provided for me. You've learned uh, about broken relationships that God's restored. You've learned about how God carried you through your loneliness and struggles, how God met you in your place of sorrow and in your hurt, and how God relieved you of your shame, and how God changed you and gave you victory over that sin pattern that was in your life. And all these things are ways that God has given you story, a story to share. We're here to give witness to, here's what I know about Jesus. Jesus met me, and he changed me. And he's given me life and hope in a way that I didn't have it. He's given you vision and, and, and a desire and passion for ministry and things that you say, when I do this and when I serve in this way, it's because it looks like Jesus, and I want you to know about him. He's given you a heart and a faith that understands that I'm going to live forever with him under God's care. And those who have died that have gone before me, one day we will be reunited and I'd love for you to be there with me too because of Christ. So your hopes for eternity and the joy of living with God forever. You have the beauty of God, the beauty of his grace, the beauty of his goodness in your life, the gospel to share. And I just tell you, most people are more likely to listen to you than to me when we start this conversation. When I step in and I say a preacher, most people do this. They just take one step back. But when you, step, when you come alongside them as a lawyer or a teacher or a plumber or a doctor or an electrician, and you say, I want to tell you how Jesus met me, I think they lean in. And they want to know. I want to know how this, this God that you talk about changed your life. And they begin to listen to that. Friends, consider the relational networks that you're a part of, the circle that you walk, circles you walk in. God has given you a circle that I don't have. And when we scatter from this place, the, the, the picture of this book is that God has not just given me, because I could go talk to a few people, but as you all scatter, we go in a hundred different directions. And each of you has a circle of relationships or a network that you're connected to. And I want you to begin to see that as this is the place where, God is deplo- where Christ is deploying you. Christ is sending you back to that circle and sending you to circle over here and you to circle in North Ebon and you to circle in Deer Creek and you to circle out in Arcadia and you to circle in North OKC. And he's sending us all out to these places. And in that, he's calling us to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the time so that they might hear a gospel message. Friends, are you making the most of the moments with the men and women around you? Are you redeeming the time? Are you grabbing hold of what it is and making them, allowing them to know what Christ has done in your life? Paul ends this book. If you look at the very end of chapter four, he ends it with just a list of names like he does oftentimes in his book and in his writing. And I think the reason why is he wants us to know this is what normal church looks like. It's a bunch of everyday men and women who are faithful brothers and sisters. It's Tychicus and Onesimus and Aristocras and Mark and Jesus called Justice and Epaphras. And he says there are faithful and beloved brothers and uh, Epaphras is a servant of Christ, always struggling on behalf of you in his prayers that you might stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. He worked hard for you and for others. These are everyday people that Paul says are doing the the mission of God. They're carrying out the mission of God. And you should see your name because if Paul wrote a letter, You should see your name in this list. If Paul wrote a letter to 
the church called Redemption in Edmond, your names would be on this list. You're the faithful brothers and sisters. You're the beloved ones. You're the ones who are working hard and always praying and always seeking the good of those around you. And he ends it in verse 17 with a charge to one specific guy that I want to take that and I just want to give it to you as a charge today. Verse 17, he says, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Friends, that's what Colossians is all about. It's where he leaves it. Is that we receive from Christ new life We're made alive together with him. He's forgiven us our sins. He's birthed new life in us. And then he's given us a mission. He calls us into it. Let's be those who see that the ministry that we've been given is fulfilled. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would make us people who pray and talk and walk and watch and are fully alive in the mission of God. Father, we pray it through Jesus and by your Holy Spirit. Amen.